welcome to the Theology Podcast. It's great to have you with us. And uh, we're back uh, communicating with each other via the internet. We're not in person. We had a number of shows where we uh, did have the pleasure of being in each other's presence. But anyway, we're glad to be in your presence, although virtually. And uh, we are uh, just glad to have you. So I'm C.R. Wiley. I'm a pastor. I serve a church in the Pacific Northwest. And I and I've written a number of books, and the latest book is in the, to- the House of Tom Bombadil. Glenn, tell us about yourself. I'm Glenn Sunshine. I'm a senior fellow at the Colson Center for Christian Worldview, Ministry Associated Reflections Ministries, retired history professor, and a couple of other things. All right. Now, Tom, I'm lowering my you know, I'm lowering my desk a little bit. Maybe I should raise my desk a little bit. So high-tech stuff going on here. High-tech yeah. Stuff. <laughs> anyway, tell us about yourself and then about the subject of the day. Okay, I'm Tom Price. I'm a theologian and Christian ethicist. I teach both, uh, one of the places of which is Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary. And uh, ethics is on the table today, an ethical issue that keeps uh, springing itself up in Western thought anyway and around the world through Western thought. And that is the somewhat unpleasant topic of euthanasia. Mm. And uh, a good springboard would be a couple of uh, articles or news articles that have popped up into the public recently. This one uh, a little bit earlier this year called Dutch to Allow Euthanasia for Under-12s. Oh, brother. Yeah. And uh, so it's not a pleasant topic and not one that I like talking about or even thinking about. But nevertheless, as a Christian, I've got to come to grips with it. And it's something we face and our children face. So I think we're going to have to kind of enter into that dark terrain and at least allow a little light to shine into it from our angle. So maybe it's a good place to begin with this article, just some of the things. And uh, I think right off the bat, you can hear the the hyper uh, irrationality of it. Um, It begins with the Dutch government on Friday gave euthanasia for children under 12 the green light, permitting quote-unquote mercy deaths for young minors suffering from quote unbearable and without hope. Um, And this is where it gets a little irrational. Uh, Children under 12 can already ask for euthanasia, which is irrational enough, with mandatory, mandatory note, parental consent until they reach 16, because, you know, that 16 is kind of yeah, a magic number, an yeah. absolute there. But this is the one that really gets me. It is also legal for babies under 12 who also can get parental permission. <laughs> I hate to laugh, <laughs> right. but just the notion that someone under one can get, ha- have a, enough uh, resource to make that kind of moral evaluation and then need to uh, uh, persuade their parents to get it um, is disur- disturbing enough. Um, So, I mean, that's kind of the intro to it. I mean, I'll I'll get into a little bit more details with it. But Canada, similarly, has been going down the Belgium Trail, as we we like to say. Um, And earlier this year in Toronto, this uh, gentleman named Alan Nichols, who had a history of depression and other medical issues, predominantly hearing issues, um, decided, he was a 61-year-old Canadian, decided that those hearing issues were painful enough and the depression along with it. So he sought kind of uh, the help for mandatory suicide. And the Canadian government sees this as quite uh, merciful 
And so an otherwise healthy human being, their body is healthy um, in, in every imaginable way other than just the hearing loss, which may or may not uh, at one point or another be able to be dealt with. And of course, the natural suffering and the, the sad side of all that. Um, but this person saw that there's no way out. And so Canada was happy to allow them to uh, quickly be assisted in taking a merciful, you know, concoction of drugs to exit existence. And we're starting to see a trend happen in the West, which wasn't there previously so pronounced, although it's been there for quite a while. Um, as we march away from the Judeo-Christian and in particular the Christian vision that underwrote even the liberal project in some ways, um, eradicated and gone to war against, we're starting to see more and more an increase in this acceptance and uh, tolerance, if not full embrace of uh, death by suicide or assisted suicide or euthanasia. Um, and so just kind of by way of a little bit of etymology, um, euthanasia, going a long way back prior to Christianity, comes from a, a, a term that means easy death, um, meant to be one that has a limited amount of suffering. Now, I think, I, I, I think as Christians, there's one of, the, one of the big problems we face philosophically, theologically, is the question of suffering, you know if God is good and creation is good and the gift you say it is and life is what it is, why in the world and how in the world did death, hell, the grave enter into it and suffering along with it? And so to compound that is the existential participation in those realities, one of which is suffering. And I think anyone in pastoral ministry knows that the intellectual problem and the existential problem sometimes tend to be very far apart. And so our ministerial compassion tends to understand at least existentially what's at issue in some of these issues, you know, in, in some of this ethical dilemma, all the while also recognizing that the easy solutions are not the best solutions. And that the, you know, the kind of what quote unquote compassionate that basically gives in very quickly to alleviating the most immediate worst case scenarios is not always the best. Chris, you were going to. Yeah. You know, I've been a pastor for a while now and, uh, got involved in pastoral ministry in the late eighties, early nineties. And I've probably buried 80 people, uh, in terms of, you know, conducting funerals, uh, for parishioners and others over the years. And, uh, one of the things, you know, that occurs to me as I think about this is that um, there's a kind of assumption that um, suffering is something that we can avoid. Um, and, and obviously, you know, when we're talking about the nature of suffering and the degrees to which people suffer, it, it's hard to, to speak to that because uh, it's personally felt, I mean, you know, yeah. you're, you're kind of on the outside and you're yeah. not able to, to evaluate uh, what another person is going through, you know, you've you've seen those uh, television shows, or maybe you've even experienced, um, you know, the question yourself, where you know, put your your pain on a scale of one to ten, yeah, you know, yeah. and and it, it, you don't really have a, an appreciation, I think, for 
what you can go through until you've gone through some things and and then um, your assessment of what you know real suffering is can be corrected when you actually uh, maybe experience a greater degree of suffering later in life or you're just able to um, through your own observations of other people who are going through worse you know stuff than than you're going you've gone through you 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 get a sense that well uh if that person was able to endure that level of suffering perhaps i've got a greater capacity for it as well again this is not like you want to wish this on anybody but we're dealing, I guess all I'm trying to express is that we're dealing with vagaries here, uh, yeah. things that are really hard to talk about yeah. in any, you know, with any precision. And there's a, a kind of subjectivism that we're, we're conceding we're, we're kind of, because of this, uh, you tell me what you can't, you can't go through. Um, yeah. and then you can opt out at that point. Um, Anyway, there, yeah. and then, you know, there, there are slippery slope questions here. People used to say, uh, you know, you, you know, you're, you're engaged in some kind of, you know, rhetorical fallacy if you, you know, appeal to the slippery slope, slope yeah. argument. The, yeah. the problem with that is I've seen the slippery slope many yeah. times in my life and it's real. <laughs> yeah. It's, it, yeah. I don't, I, I don't think it can any longer be categorized as a fallacy, right? Yeah. There are a few cases maybe, maybe yeah. in which that's the case. <laughs> yeah. Some slopes really are slippery. I mean, that's yeah. really the, the thing here. Now, uh, yeah. I've actually run into, uh, a couple of articles recently that push this even further. Oh no! Um, you know, not not only euthanasia for people who are depressed or things like that. There was a case oh, uh, months ago about a veteran in Canada who was denied medical care for um, a condition she had, uh, but they offered to kill her. Um, but just, I think it's just yeah. in the last week or so, I ran into one article where a medical ethicist, and I, you have to use the word ethicist here very loosely, uh, was arguing that um, euthanasia is a great way of providing organs for transplant, <laughs> which nothing, is already being done. Nothing like the utilitarians to run in there and take take healthy advantage of a sick situation. <laughs> but it gets worse. <laughs> yeah, oh no. They they pointed out that organs taking taken from living people are better than ones taken after death. So they were proposing that when people put in for euthanasia the way it would be done is you would put them out with general anesthesia, remove their organs for transplant, and then let them die. Yeah. It, well, we, we, again, like you said, I, I, I think this isn't kind of science fiction at this point. I think we're, we've stepped into a very yeah. distur a disturbing situation in which this stuff is accepted as, as rational and humane. Not yeah, well, only that, but but as a as a way to solve uh, problems, yeah. So that, you know, death be it becomes a way to solve a problem. Um, yeah. Either you know, and in, I think one of the things that's nobody wants to talk about, but we all know is is at work in all this is the cost of of uh, yes. healthcare. 
Yeah. And this is a marvelous, from a sick point of view, help, you know, sort of cost-saving measure that yeah. we can employ, particularly with those who are chronically ill, suffering from long-term decline, that kind of thing. Now, I'm, a, I'm enough of a realist to, to accept that uh, we need hospice care and we need to be able to provide sort of a realistic assessment of a person's uh, potential for recovery uh, from yeah. an illness and deal with that realistically. But that's a, that's a lot different than thinking about death as a solution to a problem. Yeah. But I, th- I think you both of you are right. I think the um, Hel- Helmut Tielicke, I mean, if you're going to have a German evangelical name, that's your name, Helmut Tielicke, right? <laughs> um, and of course, he's working uh, after uh, the whole, you know, kind of what all of what happened and unfolded in Germany in the Second World War. And he's writing evangelical ethics after that point. But he talks about the kind of utilitarian calculus. And he says that, you know, oftentimes, even in Germany and and in the kind of socialisms and communisms that spread across um, Western society, um, the motive was not always this dark, sinister us versus them. Let's get rid of them because they're not one of us. A lot of it actually had to do with a certain sick kind of idealism. And that idealism was grounded in the productive, the human as basically producer. And that to what it meant to be a human, um, what it meant to have human dignity was to be productive to yourself and society in some measurable kind of way. And then the index or kind of uh, the index of value was created around that. And so then what ends up happening here is that when one doesn't view oneself as productive in those kinds of ways, or when society doesn't see you as productive, and like you said, Chris, when the health system sees you as a burden rather than a a, a kind of contributor, then you are easily dismissed um, in terms of your, your being made in the image of God and your human dignity, which is significant even apart from um, those contributions um, and and you know and those consequences. So you definitely have a kind of anthrop- anthropological utilitarianism driving a lot of this, especially in you know I would argue in in our country, but I think Canada would be similar. And I think with the kind of universe you know universality of healthcare in, in the Netherlands, I think that would also be a driving force. Um, I mean, there are other, there are other forces at bay. They like to cloak it in the language of human dignity and kind of ending of suffering. But I think the utilitarian, you know, calculation tends to be the driving ethical mechanism. Yeah. It's not a coincidence. In other words, that this is occurring within, uh, countries that have socialized their medicine. Yeah. Um, so that implies too, that people, other than the person uh, who is, you know, subject. So there's always a wedge. uh, And it seems to me that, or, you know, it's another way to put it is the the tip of the spear or the the camel's nose. You know know what I'm getting at? The thing that initially kind of opens uh, the door uh, or the tent or whatever to uh, something else that comes along after. And it's always put this way. So, you know, every technological development is put in the best light possible. Mm -hmm. Uh, And every 
um, anticipated downside is dismissed uh, as uh, benighted and <laughs> uh, you know obscurantist. So uh, the the realm of you know where we see th- sort of the the advance of science or technology is probably the better way to put it is you know in, with regard to the the human body and with regard to artificial intelligence these these things. Um, I, when I was a kid, it was rocket ships and ray guns. That's what yeah. we thought was going to be like the cutting edge of the future. I, and, and that was a future I was excited about. I wasn't, I wasn't interested in a future where I was being replaced by a, a, a machine. I, I wasn't interested in a, in a future in which you were um, euthanized. Euthanized. That's right. You know, that was not my, my, my idea of progress, yeah. <laughs> but th- that's where, this is where we are. This is where yeah. we are. Yeah. Well, and, and I think especially disturbing is that, like, I mean, you, I mean, there are enough of them, but let's give an example. Um, depression. Look, everyone who has been around or has suffered with depression knows it's cyclical, right? There are episodes of it, then there are episodes at which it gets better, right? But if you're in one of the down periods, everything looks grim. Everything looks bad. So if you go during that down period and say, look, it's never going to get better. I'm going to have this for life. I want out. And you have a willing doctor and you have a willing, you know, uh, situation to accommodate it. You really do become vulnerable to manipulation. Um, Anybody in an extreme situation wants out. I mean, who doesn't, you know? I mean, if someone wants to have their stress relief, you know, they want to have the situation fixed or resolved. But then to have it exterminated. Is, well, you, is. You, well, this is the thing, Tom. You're, you've nailed it. Uh, yeah. I'm doing work right now on psyops uh, with re, you know with respect to the book I'm working on on totalitarianism, and and there are m- people who are, uh, just basically make a living uh, through manipulation. Yeah. Uh, you know, you're talking about you know psychological mm-hmm. warfare in the case yeah. of you know, actual psyops, or if you're just talking about advertising, <laughs> there are people yeah. who spend yeah. all day trying to figure out uh, ways to get people to do things that they wouldn't do otherwise. And then you've got a uh, profit motive that's at yeah. work in a lot of this. So, you know, you think about just something like transgender surgery. Uh, you've probably seen the charts where, you know, you get a map of the United States and it locates the centers of, you know, this sort of be, this sort of uh, medical act, act activity yeah. like two decades ago and there's like nothing on the map. And then you look at it today and it's just like everybody is opening up a new shop. Yeah. yeah well, it's yeah. because it's a profit center and it's a very profitable one. Yeah, and what, yeah. what, what, how do we sort out the propaganda and the advertising from uh, the real issues yeah. And likewise with this, uh, is this um, just the new sort of, I guess, cutting edge area in the in in this you know sort of the health sciences where you can make a buck? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Go, uh, go I'm ahead. gonna. I'm going to. This is going to be a little bit harsh, okay? But it's worth noting that when once abortion started uh, being shut down in a lot of places, Planned Parenthood shifted around to offering hormonal treatments to, well, uh, transgender. And 
you know, the effect of these, you know, they lie, they, just like with abortion, they lie regularly about yep. uh, what the effects of this are. They talk about it being reversible. They're not. They typically result in sterilization. I mean, you know, that that's a not uncommon side effect. And when I first heard that Planned Parenthood was doing this, all I could think of was Margaret Sanger, yeah. who, uh, in the name of eugenics, advocated sterilizing the mentally ill, among other things. Yeah. And it just struck me that this is just keeping along singing the same song, just a new verse. Glenn, you, you hit right on, I think, a profound point. And that, I think, is similar to what is going on with the Dutch and the Canadians. The fact that science can even show us through innumerable technologies that we're dealing with human life at birth and abortion is losing the, the winning battle in terms of popular mindset, even amongst liberal people in general. As those laws are changing, like the Dodd decision here, the radicalization of ways to exterminate are increasing, whether it is the castration of t children from being reproductive through the trans agenda, which I think you are right on the money, and likewise the ability for quote-unquote babies under the guidance of parental permission to eliminate their life, right? So if abortion actually doesn't, isn't able to win the day eventually in these countries, they have a safeguard of allowing it to happen through these other vehicles. Yeah, let me ask another question. Yeah. Why is it that if I try to kill myself, this is something that they will do everything in their power to prevent? But if I go to a doctor, he can do it for me? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's uh, the Samaritans. I mean, that's their ministry is to keep you from killing yourself. Um, yeah. And now we've got another group over here. It's, it's sort of like when you, when you have... Um, you know, the state sponsor gambling through the lottery and then open up an office uh, in its uh, health care division, mental health care division <laughs> for, for chronic gamblers. You know, <laughs> they win either <laughs> yeah. way, you know, so they just yeah. kind of build out the state either way they go. But this also reminds me of something. I, I just listened to a, uh, an interview with Tom Holland, the guy who wrote Dominion. Yeah. Uh, he's got another book that's just come out called PAX. And it's about, obviously, the empire, Roman Empire, which is, you know, his, what he's an authority on. And he, uh, it was an interview on, on Unheard. I don't know if you're familiar with that uh, podcast. Yeah. Yeah. But anyway, um, he uh, really did a deep dive on just how awful and, de and de debased um, things got at the zenith of the empire. So this is the thing to think about. You know, when we think about mm -hmm. the hal halcyon days of the Roman Empire, that's actually the, the place where it was the absolute worst when it came to a lot of stuff. Mm -hmm. And the same is true for the United States. I mean, we are at the apex of our global power and wealth, uh, but there was a time where virtue was just much more prevalent, uh, broadly speaking, in our society. And the same thing was true with the Romans. And they were worried, they were always commiserating about how they had lost their virtue. They, they were not what they had been. And that was true. But uh, when it came to just how degraded things were, they suffered from everything that we're suffering from, everything from transgenderism to pederasty to just it was gross and it was everywhere and it was in every level of society um and there were attempts to reform things every once in a while like antonius uh the you know the the adopted the, the father of, of marcus aurelius 
the one, the one who had adopted him and made him the, the heir to the throne, he actually outlawed pederasty, which is a remarkable thing. And if you think about, uh, you know, the, the, the part of the meditations where Aurelius is expressing his gratitude to all the people in his life, they were all tremendously virtuous people, but they were like the exception to the rule. And he was contrasting essentially his upbringing and sort of his environment and just how great it was with all the Hmm. stuff that was going on around him. Mm -hmm. Um, One of the reasons why he was one of the great emperors, uh, one of the few virtuous emperors, was because he had a really good childhood and a really good upbringing and a really good education and really good parents. (laughs) And he was shielded from a lot of this stuff. But the thing about um, Holland's treatment is you just like, my goodness, no wonder the early church had such a strong reaction to the sexual perversity and the culture of death and euthanasia and abortion in the classical world. So we're finding, we find ourselves reverting to that. Yeah. And I think that, I think we're, this is my, my, I suspect that a hundred years from now, people are going to look back on our period of time and say, thank God, God delivered us from the insanity of the early 21st century and the late 20th century. That was an awful time. And I predict as far as, you know, so you could take my predictions and make a lot of money with them. <laughs> I, I wish, <laughs> but I hope anyway. That if you're we, around in a hundred years, you might win the bet. <laughs> but my hope is that we'll have the same kind of recoiling from the stuff that we're seeing right now yeah. that we saw in the early church. Um, side note here um, about the hypersexualized culture in Rome. Um, I was reading uh, Augustine's Catechetical Instructions. And one of the things that is really striking is he talks about how really important it is to turn away from the lifestyle of the world. You know, he's very, he's saying, look, if you don't do this, you will not be saved. It's at that that kind of level. And one of the things that he has on this list is attending shows. Well, and it's because theater in that period in the Roman Empire was essentially pornographic. I mean, it's just, you know, what it was. So I, if, you, I, if you had ratings in those days, every show <laughs> was X and triple R. Yeah, <laughs> something along those lines. So I, I sometimes wonder if, the, you know, this is where we get off on the tangent. I sometimes wonder if the Puritans with the, in England with their dislike of theater – if they weren't actually influenced, that we know they read the Church Fathers. You yeah. know, we know they knew Augustine. I kind of wonder if they realized that there's a difference between the kind of shows that were going on then and the kind of shows that were going on now. So that they brought these condemnations of this pornographic theater from the ancient world and applied it in the modern world. And I think that carries on as well to a lot of the fundamentalist uh, reactions against movies and things along those lines. Well, let me just, just take, you know, it's, it's sort of a random thought. I don't, it, it's not really related to euthanasia, obviously, but it's <laughs> we, something we, I've been we never, about we never let our topic well, cover. Well, our, our <laughs> but let, let me, let me just kind of work with that a little bit, Glenn, because I actually have a background uh, in theater a little bit. Um, and I know some other people who are in theater and, uh, in the contemporary situation, if you want to see your child compromise, get them involved in theater. 
Yeah. Uh, there's a huge uh, sort of uh, grooming f- sort of dynamic, even in local theater. Uh, when we lived on the Cape, we had a, you know, uh, our, our kids expressed some interest in the theater. And so we looked into community theater. And one of our friends uh, who actually has a background in theater and taught theater at the college level, we, we just asked her, what do you think about this? And she strongly warned us that if you did that, you need to keep your eye on your kid all the time. Yeah. This is not a person who was talking about, and I mean, she was actually politically liberal herself and she was, uh, discouraging us from getting our children involved in theater because of the, just yeah. how, how bad it was. It was. Yeah. Even at, when I was a performing arts student in, at music school, we were linked with the theater department and yeah, I don't, I don't want to mention the kind of performances you could see at the university in the theater department. So uh, understandable. And this was, you know, I'm talking the eighties before it was on the public streets, you know? Um, but, but yeah, theater has basically entered the whole of society, but what, what goes on in the theater department in the eighties is now pretty much going on in every middle and high school and elementary school and, and everything else and, and most of society. And, uh, yeah, it, it, it is, there's a sick twist there. I mean, you know, I mean, you, you could look at it from something we, it's kind of a commonplace in our circles is that this is a war against the kind of Christian foundations of Western thought. And it is a continuous performance to undermine that, eradicate that, eliminate that and open up an aperture for, an alternative, and that's their alternative, right? The theater life, if you will, and it's one ungoverned by by the principles of of even even pagan philosophy, for that matter. Even though paganism had its own disturbing side, it was not like this a kind of uh, you know, as Mike well, Handy I mean, calls, a nihilistic kind of uh, perversion. Yeah, we, we, We've kind of made made a kind of a uh, a shift from euthanasia to the to the, <laughs> to the de- degradation of the theater, but but I but I yeah. just to continue this uh, line of thinking, uh, moving yeah. it along a little bit. There is something about pretending you're not who you are, yeah, that opens a door to a lot of different kinds of role play uh, and uh, a kind of uh, well, a kind of progress, or maybe you could say. Uh, the opposite of progress uh, that yeah. leads you into more uh, kind of uh, perverse expressions. So, uh, so let me ask the question: Does this mean we shouldn't go to movies or plays? Well, <laughs> I I wouldn't say that, uh, but I do think we're dealing with something dangerous, um, and I think that people who've been in in the theater who are believers yeah. understand this and see it yeah. a lot. Uh, so it isn't as though this is like an exception. This is actually kind of something that recurs again and again throughout human history in different cultures. Yeah, I, I think there's yeah, there's, there's a different set of parameters there. And I don't think it's radically off topic. I'll give you a, a reason why, where the connection sits. It's that Christianity introduces a notion of the person um, in its Trinitarian debates that focuses strongly on something from theater, the notion of prosopon, the notion of mask mask worn in the theater becomes the way in which Christians start to develop its understanding of the human person and the divine persons. And these are not modal. They're not a mask covering in essence. They are actually the, the roles 
in which our essences enact themselves. This gets kind of complicated, but anyway, it's the Christian contribution of things. And so Christianity, I think, had its own its own contribution to the arts and to, to theater and the like. Um, nevertheless, it had to do some negating work, obviously, because of the the way that those, you know, the, the problematic areas that we saw. But then we are now in a situation where the problematic areas have come back, you know, seven with a sevenfold vengeance. Um, and so what is it, you know, what does a Christian do in this context? Um, without just becoming a Puritan, uh, you know, I, I have my own reasons for not being one. Nevertheless. I prefer actually to call it a, at this point a fundamentalist. But, yeah, okay. yeah. Yeah, but but likewise, I mean, I, I think uh, I think the the kind of spiritual qualification of a person is requisite for being able to participate in and discern what's going on. I mean, that, I think that's that's at any attempt. In other words, a child at a drag shows a bad thing. Period. Right. Right. Period. It the child is not a developed. Secondly, this is not something for that it's not even something for any christian but nevertheless it's not definitely not for a child but for somebody for example that's a christian who's going to evaluate the moral situation that's going on in their culture for them to see what's going on and be able to interpret it they may be able to be equipped to do so right or likewise with what's going on culturally in film and sometimes we live in a culture you're going to have to keep your children entertained in some way. So you're, uh, you as a parent are going to have to, or you yourself for the entertainment you're going to participate in, have to evaluate whether things are, are so far that you shouldn't participate in them. They get that dark or you critically and, you know, are able to withstand what's going on. So, you know, it, it is a discernment factor and a wisdom factor. Um, and I think getting the wisdom and insight of other Christians is very important you know, and how you, you evaluate those things. But it's getting darker and darker. So it's getting easier and easier for Christians to basically say, no, I can opt out of certain things altogether. Yeah. yeah. I would argue that any kind of sexualized performance, no matter yeah. what it is, is something that we need to avoid. That's what Augustine was talking about specifically. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. Um, anyway, bringing, bringing it back to euthanasia. I was the one who derailed it, so I'll try to get us <laughs> back on track. <laughs> Um, a lot of the cases that we're talking about, I, I would say, are fairly easy ethically. You know, you 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 don't kill people who are depressed. It's just it's wrong. Okay, you you don't deny someone medical treatment but offer to kill them instead. That's wrong. You know, you don't kill children. Okay, the the, the question becomes a little more complicated though when you are dealing with cases of people who are genuinely terminally ill, mm -hmm. who are dependent, heavily dependent on medical care to stay alive, and what, when does it become appropriate to withdraw the medical care, which is essentially going to be killing them? Yeah. That's actually, those are the cases that are actually more yeah. difficult. And the reason we have to talk about those is that's the camel's nose that gets under the tent. The yeah. decision you make at that point opens the door to these other things, potentially. That's right. Yeah, and I think, too, um, you know, the, there has to be some kind of realism uh, that we uh, use to assess these things. So... Let me let me give you a couple of examples of how I've witnessed this. So if a person is in his 90s and 
we're talking about heroic measures to keep that person alive. You know, I think that there, that's a factor, that the age is a factor. But if we're talking about someone who's in his 30s, who has children and a wife, and uh, has, uh, if he, you know, is uh, healed, the prospect of, you know, uh, being a, uh, a means by which God is glorified, um, then that's something else to consider. You know, so the, 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 the practical or pragmatic considerations are not entirely irrelevant, uh, but, you know, they're not uh, the only ones. Um, yeah. So the and I've and I've witnessed both of those uh, as a pastor. I've been involved with both yeah. of situations. Well, yeah. w- one of the ways that I've heard it described is uh, the sanctity of life from conception to natural death. Well, that yeah, the phrase that, natural death becomes important here. Yeah, well, natural death is is part of the the gift, even under the conditions of the fall, right? Even though it has an enemy side, it's also a gift side. Natural death is very important here. Um, there isn't anything, I think, from the biblical vision that warrants that we have to use technology if it's available to prolong natural life. It, it is a gift, and it is a gift if, given the conditions we know at a certain point can help reverse certain things, we could be a, we are a part of it. But someone 90 years old who's going to die naturally unless they have a particular you know, injection or pump making their lungs work, right? And the lungs being work, if they took them off, they were naturally going to die. That's a whole different thing. And I don't think even the most radical Catholic, you know, would, you know, you could use that term anymore, would, would think that was the case. I mean, they, the natural death is, is, is pretty much the, you know, part of God's plan, you know? Um, okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I, I think we can agree on that, but let's get to the harder case. Yeah. Um, someone who is um, shows no uh, brain activity. Yeah. Um, they are on a ventilator, and they're weaned off of it. Yeah. So now they are Terry Shivo. Yeah. He's continuing to survive without outside intervention other than food and water. Yeah. What do you do? Do you cut off food and water? Are you, you know, do you intentionally starve her to death or have her die of dehydration? Yeah, see, I would um, have a problem with that. And I, I do think, yeah, I do think, you know, classically okay. Christian, Christian woods. I mean, mm-hmm. I think the deliberate starving of someone to death um, would be an, an, an action I don't know that we're warranted to take. Okay, let's get, the, <laughs> let's complicate this one step further. <laughs> Um, someone with dementia who has lost the ability to swallow consistently. You give this individual water, they may swallow it or they may aspirate it. Yeah. Do you stop hydrating them? Well, yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, the governing rule I mean, is... That, 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 that is a case that yeah. happened with, yeah. with right. someone I was very close to. Yeah, you're right. And they are difficult. And, you know, and again, I, I mean, I mean, just my intuitions are that you, you don't deliberately enact an action that would cre- create the conditions for death. Um, you know. well, one, one of the things to consider in, in this whole matter, too, is the spiritual dimension of the 
process of a person dying. Man. So, um, you know, we're, we're considering things strictly from the sort of the physical de- yes. side of the, the healing process. Yeah. Uh, historically understood, uh, you know, the work of healing was something that was a collaborative effort by the clergy and medical doctors. And there was yeah. a, there was an understanding that, <clears throat> that there were obviously things that God could do that, do- phys- you know, doctors couldn't do. And that was what you prayed for, but there yeah. was also the, the the question of okay, we're ushering this person out of this world into the next. This is going to happen. How do we do this in a way that uh, both honors God and His law, but also is uh, intended to help the process along in a in a in a way that uh, deals with the family's grief, uh, helps that occur, but also looks after the soul of the person who is leaving this life and passing into the next. Like when you think about, you know, traditions that no longer are observed uh, because of the way everything's been kind of sanitized and institutionalized. Just think, think, for example, of the fact that most people died at home in the past. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And they would be surrounded by their loved ones. Yeah. Hopefully, unless they were just a nasty, bitter person, everybody yeah. just couldn't wait to, to leave. <laughs> I've seen that. Yeah, they're happy to go. <laughs> but in those situations, uh, people would sit in vigil, yeah, uh, praying, singing, um, and there would be songs that were dedicated to the to the process, like Michael Row the Boat Ashore and stuff like that, which were all about leaving this life and entering the next. So, uh, and then, you know, with it, with that, you know, there's, there's, there's also a sense of, okay, we've done justice to this person and his or her life. And the fact that this is a gift of, of God and it, and that person's spirit is returning to God, but also, uh, you know, we're attending to the question of eternal life. You know, are you ready to meet your maker? This is something we all have to face. We all have to be ready for, um, that that puts, I think, some of these other matters into into yeah. a different framework that is sort of lost when we're just thinking about the technical matter of how do we keep a person alive as long as possible. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think uh, you, you hit it right on the nose with the notion that you know, first of all, the you know, for most of history, people didn't die apart from being in their household with extended family. And there's a huge issue. A lot of people are, you know, in a highly individualized Western society in particular, you tend to be by yourself. Uh, The minute suffering happens is the exit of those upon whom it will become a burden. And therefore, there's a hyper uh, loneliness involved to where that spiritual dimension becomes, I mean, very significant, but also sometimes eclipsed because, People don't know where to turn that aren't Christian, and those that are Christian oftentimes say people should be here beside me, and they're not, you know. And um, and yet, on the other side, you have people that are readied for eternity because they have the the fullness of context in place, right? You know, one of the things I think is a measure of a health, uh, how healthy a culture is, is just this very matter. Yeah. Uh, what is what are the practices surrounding death, and yeah. how is how is how is this handled? Um, I think 
when I think about our uh, in our society, to me, there are certain people who are like the canaries in the mine who help you understand whether or not things are improving or getting worse. Yeah. Uh, and one of the canaries is uh, the uh, funeral director. So I've known a number of funeral directors over the years. I mean, after all, I buried 80 people. So I got to know them. <laughs> yeah. I say, hey, Bob. Hey, Chris. <laughs> another funeral. Yeah, yeah. It's like, you know, it's like the kind of- autopsy guy for a detective, right? <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. And and you get to know these guys. Yeah. By the way, uh, funeral directors are a whole different breed. Um, <laughs> and there are lots of reasons to, for it. First of all, um, they know they're in a – the work that they perform is absolutely essential and necessary. But at the same time, there's a kind of stigma, yeah. even in our society today, that follows the, the, the handling of the dead. Yeah. And basically – uh, the the sort of the circle of the of friends that many of these people have is pretty limited, and, yeah. and so sometimes you know ministers become friends of funeral directors, <laughs> yeah. and you get and one of the things I ask these guys uh, when I've gotten to know them a little bit is are things improving or getting worse, and they know exactly what I mean. Yeah. And uh, universally, they say they're getting worse. People mm-hmm. don't know how to mourn. They don't know yeah. how to pay respect, uh, pay yeah. the respects appropriately. Uh, people in broader society are impatient with death. They'll, they don't know how to, re- so, you know, you know, you remember those processions that you would have with automobiles and so forth. People cut in. They get impatient. Yeah. Uh, they get aggressive. There's road yeah. rage incidents with funerals, yeah. and now pe- people yeah. uh, in the past would, you know, have armbands, black armbands that indicate that they're in mourning and people would understand and give that person space yeah. and, and sympathy and now no longer the case they're like uh kindergarten teachers and funeral directors they're the they're the people they're and police officers they're yeah. people who are can tell you particularly if they've been doing it for a while like you get an old kindergarten teacher like a you know a, a school mom in her 60s and she's seen it all she can tell yeah. you just the difference between how kids uh you know were 30 years ago and what they're like today. And, yeah. and usually they tell you things are, are a lot worse at home than they used to be. Yeah. So, but anyway, getting back to this point, we, we need to, as we think about death, uh, think about it within this framework. Okay. A, a healthy culture knows how to usher somebody out of this world in a way that is spiritually rich and humane and sympathetic and patient uh, and realistic. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I, I think, I think you hit, you, you hit a very important thing. And I think a lot of times when we think of solutions of these, we think, okay, if we can intellectually address the two kind of ethical issues kind of that drive this thing, one is the the preference for a, a view of the human that is autonomous, right? In the West. And then the avoidance of suffering at all costs, which is another thing coupled with it that somehow we're going to address this issue. But I think really down where, where, where the rubber meets the road is in our existence and lives. The funeral, the way we deal with it, the sick person, the way we deal with them, the, the person that in our own context, the way in which we have to deal with them, that's where it matters. And that's where the Christian difference shows up, isn't it? And, and so I think you're, you're right, um, just in terms of uh, on, on the living end. I mean, I think the, you know, Christians that want to think about what shape does it look like to be a culture of life rather than death is one that really is attuned to the kind of suffering of its family and church family and people in, in, that are brought into its world that there is a, 
individualism that leads to loneliness and despair and a depression and an economic burden and stuff that is unbearable for people. And that having Christian life, whatever limited form it comes in, is significant to get into those contexts. Look, I, I don't agree with Stanley Hauerwas on a lot of things, but I remember him talking about a situation of, of, in which he went into a hospital of a, a friend suffering and dying and how uncomfortable he felt, the way he's fidgeting the blinds and how can I help? And he said, all I could do is think about how to get out of there, <laughs> you know? And, and that's, I think, right on to your point. I mean, they, they, as a Christian, we don't need to think about how to get out of there. How do we get into there? Right? How do we get into there and not make people suffering with depression or you know terminal sentences think that the only way to deal with this is to exit? Right? I think as a church and a worldwide church, as a Catholic church in the fullest sense of the word, we have resources that can help. Doesn't alleviate everything but can help. I mean, I think that's important on a ministerial side, right? This is something that we give the world that it can't conjure up through its own kind of economic or governing purposes. Um, we could pressure governments to, to do more, right? But I think we, we can be attuned to that. Um, I think also, like you said, the way in which we deal with death in light of the hope of the resurrection, but also as being there um, is a big thing. Now, we can't be everywhere, right? Um, but we can be in some places. And I think that's a, a that's a big deal. But I, I wonder um, whether partly this is a, a kind of filling in the void that's been left in a secular society because of the withdrawal of the the institutions that or the or the decay or the collapse of the institutions which provided a meaningful framework within which death to can, can occur. So like yeah. obviously extended family, uh, church, that kind of stuff. Yeah. I've got, you know, many, uh, having buried as many people as I have, I've got many, uh, stories and things I can think about. Uh, one of the things that I would do with guys who were my associate or assistant pastors over the years, and I've had a number of them is I would make a point of taking them to the, to, uh, the terminally ill to, to visit and show, show them how it's done. This is how you speak with a person who knows he's dying. And this is how you pray with that person. This is how, these are the scriptures you read to that person. You know, these are the things that you're asking that person, that kind of stuff. But also I've been in situations where the medical authorities completely defer to me. I mean, almost to a degree that's embarrassing where I'm like taking over the room and telling people what to do and how to behave. <laughs> and and uh, uh, they want you to do that. Yeah. It's not as though you are uh, over, overstepping the boundary uh, or crossing a, a boundary you shouldn't cross. This is the moment where you, like, let me give you an example. I remember one time I got a call, two in the morning during a blizzard on Cape Cod, uh, one of my parishioners had been hit by a snowplow, was completely cut open, and was dying. Uh. So they told me, "You better get here right away." One of your parishioners is dying. Mm. So I obviously I drove through the storm, got to the hospital. As soon as I announced my presence, they ushered me in. I mean, everybody just got out of the way, and it and it's really moving just even thinking about this. But he was being worked on by half a dozen people, and as soon as I stepped into the room, I stepped back. And it's like this is your time. Yeah, and so yeah. I just took over, yeah. 
And, uh, you know, the Spirit of God was very palpable, very present. Everybody, I looked around in the eyes of everybody in the room. I don't have no idea what the religious backgrounds were, but they knew that that we weren't alone. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. I prayed with that guy. Yeah. And talked to him about his soul. He was still yeah. conscious, but he was, but he was in such agony and yeah. moaning and groaning and just. Um, if there was a moment where somebody would have said, "Kill me now," that guy would have said that. that but you know yeah. what? He lived. <laughs> wow. He survived. Yeah. So anyway, uh, just kind of something else to throw into the thinking. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think those dimensions are significant. Glenn, go ahead. Yeah, I, I want to pull this back one step. I think that we've got a series of interlocking assumptions that are going on here. Uh, one of them is that the medical world in the West has adopted a model of the human body that says it's a biomechanical machine. And when something goes wrong, you fix it. Yeah. That's how medicine works in the West. Yeah. In other parts of the world, they have a different metaphor for, for the body and for health. Yeah. Um, notably, for example, in Asia, where it is seen as an energetic system, and your job is to keep the energy flowing correctly so that the person stays healthy. They're not as good at repair as we are, but we're not as good at, at sort of holistic health as they are. Okay. But that's because of the metaphor we're using. Now, in our culture, what happens when you have a device that stops working? Well, you may try to fix it, but generally speaking, what we'll do is throw it out and buy a new one. Yeah. And I, th I think when, when you think about it in those terms, uh, euthanasia is a matter of shutting down a system that isn't working properly. You just, you know, you're getting rid of it. And when you add into this harvesting organs, yeah. we are essentially collecting spare parts. It, it's very, it's very fascinating because what you have going on are the two basically opposed anthropologies of modernism working in tandem. What do I mean by that? On the one hand, you have this naturalism that we're nothing but a machine in parts and that we're significant only insofar as they work healthily towards survival, fitness, and when they're not, it's okay to basically get rid of them or utilize them for further survival and fitness. Flip side it with how they sell it through the lens of you are basically not merely your body, but a choosing agent. And your choice, which transcends the body, basically has sovereignty over it, right? That you're not, your body is your property and you own it and you can do what you want with it, fashion it how you want, enable it, enact it, or eliminate it as you want. You're the owner of it, right? So they sell this Cartesian vision, if you will, distorted Cartesian vision. Descartes, I don't think, would be, have been with that. So that we live in this age, basically, where our chief highest values, not God or any other premise or higher good, but our choice, right? So if you choose, even as an infant, to end your life, whatever that means, right, for the, for the Netherlands, that becomes sacrosanct and higher than the fact that you have been endowed with the gift of a body, right? So a big question the church would ask, and you know, Catholics have been a little bit ahead of this than the rest of us, is does a person have a property right to their own body?
I would I would say no. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, first of all, it's it's granted by God, so there is a, a higher. Uh, there's someone else who has a claim on it, but there are other people who have a claim on your body. Yeah. So you know, the Apostle Paul makes a very strong argument for sexual relations in marriage based on this very thing. Now, all of those you know feminists out there who think, oh, it only worked in one direction. That's actually not the case. Paul's argument uh, says that wives have a, a ownership claim on their husbands. Yeah. Um, so, which would have been really unusual in that culture, right? Kind of groundbreaking. Yeah. Right, right. But but then your children do. I mean, if you you know your children are uh, in some sense chips off the old block, so to speak, and if you are responsible for their care, uh, then your children. Uh, have a claim, not just while they're small and dependent, but uh, throughout the course of your life. I'm, yeah. I'm experiencing this now. I mean, I've got, yeah. uh, you know, five grandchildren, yeah. uh, and uh, it's becoming more clear to me all the time that um, my role in the lives of my grandchildren is um, obviously because, you know, due to the fact that I'm connected to them through their parents, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but there's, a, but there is a, a biological claim that my grandchildren have on me that, that, uh, for example, let me, let me, let me put it this way. Uh, I can remember, I have a living memory of my grandchildren's great, great grandparents. I am a link to the past for them, a physical link to the past. I have a responsibility then to, I think, help them know where they're from, uh, because I know the, I knew these people. I knew them well enough to actually quote them to them, <laughs> as your great great grandfather would have said. <laughs> that kind of thing. That's just a sample, a small sample of the uh, the sort of claim that we don't even think about today when it comes to these matters. Yeah, yeah I'll, add, I'll add one more. I'm going to go in a, uh, a different direction, uh, and that's the idea of unalienable rights. Mm -hmm. An unalienable right is a right that no one has the right to take away from you, including yourself. They're very clear when, they, when, when theologians started talking about unalienable rights. Mm -hmm. They were rights you could not rescind yourself. Yeah. One of those, the most foundational of them, is the right to life. And the reason why these rights are unalienable is they don't belong to you. They belong to God. God is the one who granted you these things. So only God has the right to remove them. Yeah, yeah. So the right to life is something that other people cannot deprive you of your life. Yeah. Except yeah. under certain specific circumstances having to do with, with law and, and such. Yeah. Uh, without due process and all that sort of thing. No one can deprive you of right to life. And you do not have the right to deprive yourself of life because it was granted to you by God. Um, and you know, yeah. and that, that, is, that is absolutely fundamental to Christian thinking on this from day one. That's right. And society in, the, in this world has now been basically you know, buffered against any of the intrusions of any good or any God that places a premise over free choice. 
And what do children do? What do grandchildren do? What does God's command do? But they place a premise over our choice, that there is something higher than the value of our own choosing, and that this value is the way we're to order our loves and our actions and our own ethics. And part of that is our own life, and even as it suffers and everything else, that we deal with that with dignity, both to the fact that one, I am the Lord your God, and you shall love me first above all things. I know what's better for you. I put you in the world, and the suffering is not without meaning, significance, purpose in the eternal realm of things. But secondly, love your neighbor as yourself. Your life matters to your family and your children, even if they're not showing up right now, you know, um, or someone. You know, and it's not the person merely is putting the injection in your vein, right? And for those that are hopeless outside of this, the first premise sits whether the second doesn't. That God loves you and you're in existence because of that. And you still have something within his plan parameters, um, both for his glory and your own, um, that is part of what the suffering's all about, you know? And I think we can't eradicate that. No, and, and also kind of another wrinkle to this is that sometimes your kids might be morons and they, <laughs> they actually do owe you a great deal and are benefiting from your presence uh, in their lives, even if they can't appreciate it. Yeah. Um, they, they might, uh, uh, you know, on the one hand, be critical, maybe they're for, for you know, partially understandable reasons, but at the same time, uh, they, they're not actually... Uh, competent to make a good evaluation of the of your of your worth, and maybe never will be. In, in other words, our, the value that we um, add to the lives of other people, even people who don't appreciate our presence, is not uh, theirs to determine uh, uh, or ours to determine. It's ultimately uh, God. Anyway, uh, anything you want to say as we wrap up here, uh, Glenn and Tom? I think that summed it up. <laughs> I'm done. I think I couldn't have said it better than that. <laughs> okay. Well, thank you for uh, listening all the way to the end of the, this episode of the Theology Podcast. It's been great to, to have you with us for it. We hope it's been uh, helpful. And if you uh, appreciate our show, uh, there are ways that you can can help other people appreciate it too. One, one of those is uh, by giving us a, a, a nice rating on whatever platform uh, you listen to our show on. Uh, this is one of those things we don't talk about a lot, but it does make a difference. And uh, we more or less, uh, as, a, as the show has developed, decided that we're just going to let it kind of propel itself on its own steam, so to speak. But every once in a while, it's nice to remind you that, or it's good to remind you that it does help if you give us a nice review uh, on iTunes or wherever. And then, of course, uh, there are the ongoing costs of the show that are uh, offset by regular givers and those folks who support us on patreon are really appreciated it makes a difference we wouldn't be able to pay the bills without you if you'd like to join that august band of folks uh, you can find the link in the show notes anyway that's enough for now thanks a lot bye-bye bye now bye The Theology Podcast is a ministry of Trinity Reformed Church in Huntsville, Alabama. If you like this podcast, you might enjoy the book by Jason Cherry, The Making of Evangelical Spirituality, 
available on Amazon.